Hi, everybody. It's Bean, and welcome to an all-new episode of Great Moments in Weed History, and more specifically, welcome to the second annual Weedathon. Now, you may be asking yourself, particularly if you missed the first annual Weedathon last year, what the fuck is a Weedathon? Well, I'll start with the weed. This is the episode where I puff tough from start to finish. Mmm. As I'm doing right now, getting in shape for 420, and, you know, it wouldn't be a weed-a-thon without a lot, a lot of weed. As far as the thon goes, <laughs> as far as the a-thon part goes, <coughs> that is because, <coughs> oh, whew, this shit's starting for real. Mm. That is because this is our annual fundraising drive, fundraising drive, where we first of all are going to start out thanking all of our supporters on Patreon who make this show possible, and we're going to invite all of the rest of you to please join in. You can go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and find out more about how to support this program. The whole Weedathon idea uh, came to be uh, when I saw this clip online of, you know, you've probably heard of the Jerry Lewis uh, telethon, or old uh, comedian from before pretty much anyone's time at this point would go on TV for hours and hours to raise money uh, to support children with developmental disabilities. A great cause, but uh, on one of these many telethons that he hosted, uh, things got a little weird late one night when he, uh, how else can I put it, he made a direct appeal to the nation's cocaine dealers. You know that last year there was about $80 billion spent in this country for coke, heroin, marijuana. Every day in the port of Miami, they're picking up a billion dollars worth of cocaine. If I can get a child out of a wheelchair, I don't care where I get the money. So you big wheelers and dealers out there that are so high right about now anyhow, I'm not condoning what you people do, but I sure as hell would love to share some of that loot with you. Now, just like Jerry Lewis, I don't care where you get your money, but... I will say if you get your money from growing or buying or selling cannabis legally, illicitly, above ground, below ground, uh, wouldn't it feel good to put a little of that green energy towards the preservation of cannabis history? I got to re-up on the weed part of the weed-a-thon. And get ready because I'm going to play clips from some of the most fascinating heart rending, joyful, sad, inspiring interviews that we've done in the entire run of great moments in weed history. We are coming up on our 100th episode, so there's a lot of stories to choose from, and uh, I hope that you can settle in with me. You know, no time to hit pause on this one. It's a weed-a-thon. I'm just going to be blazing nonstop. We're not going to do the theme song. We're not going to hit pause. If you've got to roll up a joint or split a blunt or pack a bong or endabulate a dab, just do it because uh, we are off on a roll with this weed-a-thon already. 
And we're also going to hear directly from some of the people who have been longtime supporters of this program on Patreon, new supporters of the show on Patreon, including some people that you've gotten to meet if you are a Patreon supporter because I have talked to them for the secret sessions. So right now, every other weed on every other weedness day, you get our classic Great Moments in Weed History episode. But if you join us at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, you'll get a new episode every weed on every weedness day because you'll have access to the secret sessions. You'll also get to see the video version of this podcast. You'll see me blazing it up right now and you will be a part of this community that is growing every day our goal is to get to 420 supporters by 420 we are so close i hear the phones ringing at our weedathon headquarters right now headquarters slipped a weed pun in there for you uh those phones are ringing off the hook which is weird because this is not a call-in show and we do not have a phone line set up the only way to support us is by going to great moments in weedhistory.com enough of that for now we gotta light up again and again when you talk too much your joint goes out but it's an occupational hazard for me right now and so enough of me for a minute let's get right into our first clip this is actually from the first ever interview on great moments in weed history and it was with a dude named jesus hands he is a friend of this podcast and he is also the artist and comic prankster who in the early hours of new year's day 2017 scaled the iconic hollywood sign and affixed tarps to two of the letters so that instead of hollywood it read hollyweed that's right seeing that sign the next morning uh in person or watching it on tv it just lifted a lot of people's spirits my own included at the start of a year that felt very ominous to say the least it was a simple gesture but one that required a level of planning and execution usually found in Hollywood heist movies. Jesus Hands told us the whole story from start to finish, including how he almost fell off the side of the 50-foot-tall sign uh, while affixing those tarps. Uh, it's just an unbelievable, wild, weedy tale. And in this clip that we're about to play... He described how after running away from the scene of the crime, you know, right after he did it in hopes of avoiding security cameras and the police, something told him to stop for a moment and breathe it all in. So I, I, at that point, I was like, yo, just chill, bro. I'm like, you got a joint. It was Jack Herrera. I, I just lit up a joint and music was playing. So I had it on shuffle. This is another omen, bro. I had it on shuffle. An artist by the name of Jim James. There's a song called The World Smiling Now. And it came on. And like, I couldn't believe what I was seeing because in the distance, I, I was able to see fireworks going off because it was New Year's. To have that song come on and be like, like the world smiling. And, and, and the best part about it is like, I never really got to see the sign completed. I left, I went home. And I didn't see it until the next day, well, that morning on media. Amazing. And I, I got to say, Jim James of My Morning Jacket is one of my favorite musicians as well. He would definitely be in any dream blunt rotation that I had going. So there was a synchronicity for me right in there. 
And that's what's so great about hosting this show, getting to meet all kinds of different stoners from all walks of weed life. In this episode alone, you're going to hear from artists, musicians, writers, politicians, growers, smugglers, wheelers, dealers, and more. And uh, let's get into the next clip. It's, uh, you know, everybody's got a favorite stoner movie, and mine is Dazed and Confused, which I feel is like a deceptively brilliant film where weed represents liberty and liberation. So when a book called All Right, All Right, All Right, An Oral History of Dazed and Confused came out last year, I I bought it immediately and I dug in and I just loved reading about all the behind the scenes hijinks. Yes, hijinks. So many people from that film went on to become huge stars. If you have never seen Dazed and Confused, uh, you know, you've got a great 420 movie waiting for you uh, to watch on this high holiday coming up. And if you have seen it, you know, it's always good for a rewatch. In this clip, we are talking with Jason London, who starred in Dazed and Confused as Randall Pink Floyd and he told us about his own greatest moment in his own personal weed history. The very last shot of the movie is actually the very last shot that we did. And it's the one where we're going to the Aerosmith concert and we're in the car and we're smoking a joint. We were on a pool trailer. And so the the director and everybody else, they're up in front of us. The wind is going this way. So Rory pulls out a real joint. That last joint in the movie is actually a real joint. What are they going to do, fire us at that point? (laughs) All right. How cool is that? You got to spend the summer as a young actor uh, on the set of this super cool movie about stoners from the 70s. And then the very last day, the very last scene, you get lit. That is some legendary shit. And speaking of legends, you know, this January, rock legend David Crosby passed away rest in plants to not just a music legend but a weed legend as we discovered when we had him on this very podcast you know in addition to all of his incredible musical achievements as part of the birds crosby stills nash and young and as a solo artist David Crosby was also known for being a true cannabis connoisseur dating all the way back to the 1960s. We were so fortunate to interview him and have a sesh right before his 80th birthday, and he told us about everything from the strain of weed he smoked the Beatles out on. All right. I mean, (laughs) that is some some stoner... uh, street cred, uh, to the smugglers he knew back in the 70s who were bringing in loads of weed from the Caribbean by sailboat, to how much later in his life as uh, as a senior citizen he loved growing his own weed in his own backyard. In this clip, the Craws told us about his glory days as a chart topping rock god, widely known to have the best ultimate Stash. The pot that we had in the 60s early was dog poop, bricked up, full of seeds, kilos coming up from Mexico, you know, in truck beds. I don't know who in Mexico knew about Cincinnati and knew how to do it, but somebody did down in Michoacan. As soon as we got that stuff, it was an entire different world 
Uh, it was really good plant. It was really good flowers. Stunningly strong. But there was no no shortage of really stunning pot back then. We were getting actual tie stick that was real tie stick on the stick. All right, lighting this one up for you, Cross. Uh, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Hopefully not too soon. Uh, <laughs> the weed, the weed uh, portion of the weedathon is definitely kicking in. I'll do a little bit of an athon, just reminding you that we are trying to get to 420 supporters on Patreon. We are so close. You can go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com to find out more. You'll get the video version. You can put as little as $1 on it. You can put 5 on it. Or for a little more, you can get a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot Properly, sent right to your door. Uh, speaking of smoking pot, properly <laughs> speaking of uh stone segues that uh you know <laughs> we'll, we'll you know we'll work for now I, I i i i put a lot of time folks into digging up all these clips and, and finding the right ones and so uh <laughs> you know you're gonna be along for the ride for the uh interstitial stuff i'm, I'm recording it all at once and uh i i just it's i'm not gonna have to <laughs> Here we go. Uh, speaking of smoking pot properly, uh, our, our next uh, clip is with uh, a, a, a true inspiration of mine. Vivian McPeak, he is the co-founder of the Seattle Hemp Fest, an event that began back in 1991, in essence, with a peaceful occupation of a public park, you know, by a, a handful of hardcore stoners and grew uh, through an all-volunteer effort until uh, hundreds of thousands of people were gathering uh, uh, for a multi-day festival right in the heart of Seattle. You know, you can go back and watch clips of Jack Herrer, Rhymes with Terror, and Woody Harrelson addressing uh, the crowd as huge wafts of smoke came up. Um, but for all the fun of it, Vivian really explained how it was a combination of hippie idealism, pothead pragmatism, mutual support, and civil disobedience that helped establish Seattle Hemp Fest as a people-powered working model for every freaky weed fest to follow. In this clip, Vivian explains how his all-volunteer crew would jump through every kind of bureaucratic hoop imaginable to put on a huge freak fest right in the heart of Seattle. We would have 700 stoners show up and put on staff shirts and erect five, six stages and fencing and generators and tents and, and operate this crazy thing for three days that was larger than some cities in Washington State and then tear it all down, pack it out and clean that park. We clean that park spotless. We pick up every cigarette butt on that 1.3 mile expanse and we clean it every night actually after every single day. We sort, we triage all of our refuse and we sort from recycle, compost and landfill. If the, the, if the, if the story about stoners was true, Hempfest would have been a disaster every year. You know, imagine if it was alcohol fest and all of your staff was drinking alcohol and stuff. I mean, what, what would that be like, right? And so the proof's in the pudding. You just can't deny 25, 30 years doing this. Nothing ever goes wrong. Maybe the story about stoners being lazy and unmotivated. We should say we're the most motivated stoners there are. 
All right. I hope you're having as much fun as I'm having. I hope you're having as much weed as I'm having. Uh, and I am excited to continue to hear those completely fictitious phones ringing in the background. I feel like we are on our way to 420 supporters. And the next clip really, to me, represents what this show is all about and, and why I, I do hope you will uh, find it in your heart to to chip in because I know there's a lot of weed content out there looking at this plant from every different kind of angle. And I'll just say we work really hard at Great Moments in Weed History to try to bring you unique stories, to try to bring you uh, voices that you might not hear anywhere else. And increasingly to try to bring you global stories. And our story about the Indian land race exchange certainly uh, hit on all of those notes. So here's what you need to know. In remote areas of India, Afghanistan, and Southeast Asia, indigenous farmers have been cultivating cannabis on small plots of land that uh, these farms date back centuries, literally. But now maintaining their precious land race strains, these old school genetics that they've been working with for generations, it's a really an uphill battle as we enter this age of legalization and industrialization of the plant. Uh, that's where the Indian Land Race Exchange comes in. They are a grassroots, locally led, local to India, uh, globally crowdsourced effort to support traditional cannabis growing communities while also preserving some of the oldest and rarest and most unique cannabis strains on earth before they're potentially lost forever. It was a real honor to speak with the founder of the Indian Land Race Exchange. He goes by a uh, alias on Instagram. You can find him there. In this particular clip, he uh, told us about his very first experience with the cannabis plant. And I have to say, it was one of the coolest uh stories anyone has ever told on this podcast you know in our village we, we didn't really have like a water facility like we didn't have running water in our uh, house so we basically have to you know pick up pots in the morning like six seven as soon as you can wake up and then just go down the mountain and just collect some water from like a natural fountain which was on the slope so on the way you know we'd be accompanied with all of these uh, other guys who were like elder guys who were basically you know rubbing the plants and they would just ask us to rub the plants as well i mean i was just like really young maybe around like 7 8 years old 6 years old so i didn't even know like what i'm doing but like they're just telling us to just, just rub these plants because our hands are like small and soft so they think our hand gets like this different kind of resin and uh, by the time we'd reach, uh, you know, the spot where we'd get the water, you know, they'll just take out all the hash from our hands and then just collect it and, you know, mix it with tobacco and then just fill it into the cigarette. And it was like really intriguing for us because we couldn't really understand. And it was so confusing that they're taking, uh, you know, this dirt from our hand and just mixing it in tobacco and then, you know, emptying the cigarette and then filling it again. It just... Just mind-boggling. There's so many things, you know, which needs to be answered there in that whole process. One thing that, you know, we, we, we did notice is that once, you know, they smoked that cigarette, they all get got really happy and, and they were like so eager to smoke it. And then, you know, they were just all happy and joking and, you know, just, just pick up the water, no problem, and just, you know, go back up. So uh, slowly and steadily, then as we started smoking, so then, then we got to know, oh, okay, you know, they were just basically making us make hash for them. Mm. 
I would like to smoke some of that hand hash, I have to say. Moving on to our next story. This is one that really hits you in your heart. We talked with author Marie Lee, who in 2009 published an essay titled, Why I Give My Nine-Year-Old Pot. Now, back in 2009, this set off a media sensation. This was years before CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta ever touched the subject of pediatric use of cannabis. And, you know, Marie Lee is, among many other things, a, a brilliant and beautiful writer, and her vulnerable and defiant description of how she was desperately seeking relief for her severely ill son and then found uh that relief in cannabis well it just struck a nerve with people and particularly parents worldwide now marie is a teacher in the creative writing program at columbia university and she came on great moments and weed history and described for us her son jay's difficult but ultimately extremely rewarding journey with medical cannabis for treating his severe autism and other debilitating conditions. In this clip, Marie described for us how cannabis helped transform her relationship with her son. We bake him these cookies and then it was just like, it wasn't at all like he was high. It was just like the pain just got tamped down. Going back to, you know, wanting to hospitalize him and he'll never, you know, the other big thing is he'll never learn how to ride a bike you guys should see us riding bikes, dude. Like I made his teacher calm who said he could never learn how to bike because they're like, well, kids with autism, there's too much executive functioning. And they don't know how to steer. And, you know, I just showed him Jason like riding the bike around, riding the bike around. He never called me mommy before or seemed to think I was not a piece of furniture that was biteable. So we've been able to like go on trips and go out. It's opened up a new emotional life for him. One of the things with the biking that has been so enormously helpful is that he can, he looks like a normal child when he's biking. Like even if we don't know what he's thinking, that must feel really good to have some time where he's just like, I'm biking. I just like bike. Okay. If you're anything like me, uh, you're feeling a little verklempt right now. You're feeling a little uh, overwhelmed with emotion. And so I'm going to take a puff. I'm going to push those emotional buttons just a little bit more. Uh, I'm going to say, you know, if that story touched your heart, imagine it reaching people all over the world, because that's what this podcast is able to do, including in places where cannabis is still strictly prohibited. The episode with Marie Lee, I know, reached some people who were researching how to uh, treat their own children with cannabis, or at least trying to find out more information about it. And gosh, if we could be a conduit for people to find the plant and hopefully find some of the same relief that Marie Lee did, um, isn't that something you'd want to uh, support a little bit along with all the fun and all the history um, and all the uh weed and the weed-a-thon. Um, and just to keep you in that emotional place, I'm going to play a quick montage. I asked people who already support the show on Patreon, who went to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and threw in on this shit, uh, to just leave me a voicemail and uh, maybe say why they, they felt moved to do that. And uh, maybe it'll inspire you to do the same. To me, of course, I just personally 
felt so much love listening to these calls and um, really a lot of validation that that this show does reach people um, and that they see the value in it. So let's hear from some of the GMIWH fam, the ones who are getting an episode every weed on every weedness day. Hey, Bean and fellow Great Moments in Weed History fam. First, I want to thank you for working so hard for to save cannabis history, and I really can't believe how much I never knew and I've learned from this podcast. My favorite part is the vibe, which is so relaxed, kind, and real, just as a plant we all enjoy. If I had to pick a favorite episode, which is really hard to do, I'd say it's probably the episode on Dennis Perone, because I seriously hadn't learned about him, and I have no idea how that had happened in my own history and personal community in the cannabis world. But he really is an inspiration and a badass, and it reignited my sense of act- activism after listening. I really enjoy the secret sessions, too. They're really fun and a really good way for us to become more of a community and just enjoy the time on Patreon. If you love cannabis, then you'll love coming to be part of the chill, fun-filled, and history lessons as a community of great moments of weed history. Peace, y'all. Patreon subscriber, JJ, just given my um, uh, two cents for the 420 episode. Uh, my wife and I are actually pretty recent within the last year subscribers uh, to the Patreon and, and listeners to the show. You know, the ethics and the, the sort of values that you really espouse being so true to our own values, you know, about you know not supporting these corporate overlords and <laughs> to buy stuff from people who actually, you know, give a shit. Having the show is like having a good friend, whether uh, whether you all know it or not. Um and, uh, you know, also the interaction on through the app was really, really uh, touching and, uh, you know, helpful, too. So, you know, thanks. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep making them. I'll keep supporting them. Hi, it's Andrew in Seattle, and I've been a Patreon supporter since 2018. Even after all that time, I still learn something new every episode. I love it. There's so many good ones, but a few of my favorites are December 2020's Santa's a Psychedelic Mushroom Shaman because it's such a bonkers and wonderful story. And the total joy that Abdullah and Bean take in telling this to each other is just beautiful to listen to. September 2019, Wham! takes down the DEA. I think this episode makes a case that Valerie and Wham! might be the single most impactful organization in the modern history of weed. And the showdown in the hills of Santa Cruz with the DEA really is a huge turning point in the war on drugs. I think my favorite of all is November 2021's Cannabis Saved My Child's Life with Marie Lee, because it's the story not just of cannabis as medicine, but of this average person turning into this incredible articulate advocate, not just for the plant, but for the amazing role the support of the cannabis community at large played in her and her child's story. It's just great. Go listen to it. Hi, this is Vicki in a pro- prohibition state. Just wanted to leave you with the thought that I just love your podcast and learned so much from it. My favorite one that blew my mind is the one about Jesus using cannabis. You guys are great. I love your research, and I definitely want to be on the side of activism if I possibly can in my prohibited state. Thank you. Love you guys. Hey everyone, this is Jason, and I donate to GMIWH because they are chronicling a human tradition that has lasted for millennia, has resisted prohibition, has spanned continents and climates and altitudes, 
latitudes, longitudes, vicissitudes. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much why. Wow. Thanks, fam. All right. I'm waving to all of those Patreon supporters because they all have access to the video version of the Weedathon, the second annual Weedathon, and every other episode of this podcast. Now, we were talking a little bit earlier about how this show can reach people all around the world. It's so cool to look at the download numbers. We have a nice following in Nigeria after uh, doing the episode about Fela Kuti, the musician. You can go back way back in the archives. Uh, all almost 100 episodes are all still available for free. There's no hard sell. You can listen to the show and sh please share the show with your friends, uh, whether you're able to chip in or not. But another international show that uh, really gained us a new following is in Japan. And it all started when we did an episode about the history of cannabis and hemp in Japan, which was once uh, the second biggest crop there, uh, only to rice. And that was the situation until uh, after World War II, the U.S. military occupied Japan following the war and imposed cannabis prohibition, uh, just as the plant had already been prohibited in the United States. Ironically, it's the success of legalization activists in the United States right now that has has been inspiring a movement of homegrown Japanese advocates to return cannabis to its rightfully exalted place in Japanese culture. Naoki Miki, who you're about to hear from, is co-founder of Green Zone Japan, which is a leading organization pushing for the rights of medical cannabis patients. She told us about the central place that the cannabis plant has played in the history and culture of Japan. Pre-World War II, there were over 50,000 hemp farmers. We wore clothes made from the fiber, ate seeds, made oil, even used it medically. There was a hemp cigarette advertised in newspaper for asthma. There was a tincture called Indian hemp tincture. Yes, our um, indigenous religion called Shintoism reveres hemp as sacred plant, and it, it uses fiber ropes and papers made of hemp in various ceremonies. And if you know sumo, <laughs> our, our wrestling, the grand champion wears a rope around the, the waist in the opening ceremony of each tournament. That's made of hemp. And outside of all the shrines, there's a big rope hang to mark the sacred space and ward off evil spirits. That's also made from hemp. Another wild story from that episode is that uh, a number of years ago, there was a huge scandal in the world of sumo wrestling in Japan when uh, several different wrestlers tested positive for THC and were banned for life from competing. Uh, but it did kind of 
elevate the debate about cannabis in Japan because it became a national issue as the uh, that sport is is revered uh, over there. And I gotta say, it's a pretty fun uh, thing to you know light up a J and 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 watch some sumo if you ever have the opportunity. It used to be on ESPN late night. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> tangents upon tangents. All right. The next stop on our Weedathon Super Sesh will be uh, to pass it along to Weldon Angelos. I find him and his story uh, so inspiring. And like many stories that we tell here on Great Moments in Weed History, it began with some real oppressive, racist, criminal justice bullshit. Um, and, you know, we we do talk about the great moments in weed history on the show. And Weldon has certainly had his share, uh, both before going to prison and getting out. But we also, you know, do not look away ever from the ongoing prohibition of this plant, from its uh, racist beginnings to its racist middle to its racist current day. And Weldon Angelo's story is really emblematic of that. He was sentenced in 2004 to 55 years in prison for selling $900 worth of weed. Why he was really targeted is because he was bringing hip-hop shows to Salt Lake City, Utah, and the police and the powers that be did not like that, you know. As a music producer, Weldon worked with legends like Snoop Dogg, Tupac, Nas and Pink. And it was this association with hip-hop music and culture uh, that made him a target for law enforcement. And this draconian sentence of 55 years for $900 worth of weed. But um, the thing you're going to learn about Weldon is that from the time he arrived at a maximum security prison to serve this virtual life sentence, he began advocating for himself and every other nonviolent cannabis prisoner in the United States. While incarcerated, he built this bipartisan coalition and ultimately got President Obama to commute his sentence in 2016. And then in 2020, he was given a full uh, pardon. He's out now and he is continuing to advocate for an end to cannabis prohibition and the release of every nonviolent offender. In this clip, Weldon uh, described how his creative work as a musician was used against him in a court of law. But what's interesting is as we get further into my trial, all you see is hip hop. You see pictures of Snoop. You see East Side clothing, which is Snoop's clothing. You see 50 Cent with bulletproof vest on. And you have, they actually played three albums that I produced for the jury. And a lot of the music, the, the, my whole jury was all older white women. And, and, and they're homemakers, not even from the city. So, you know, I grew up in the city. They're from like the outskirts. They're all homemakers. And I'm like scared to death. And so I was, I was scared. And one juror actually expressed fear to the judge at the beginning of my trial. The juror was scared because they seen guns. They seen bulletproof vests. They seen gangster rap music. And the prosecutor, this gets interesting because the prosecutor actually rapped lyrics from an album I produced for Mac Dre. He started his closing argument rapping Mac Dre lyrics. And he said, this is what this case is all about. 
And I had no chance. Even when I interviewed jurors after the fact, they said, look, we thought we thought the informant was lying. We thought that lead agent was lying. But at the end of the day, we couldn't accept that the government does this. And so we had to believe that, that you were guilty of it because why would they charge you if something you didn't do? Now, today, you know, they were like, we understand the system is corrupt and we would not have convicted you. And you know, the offending conduct was literally, here's a guy that I knew, He's he was a former friend, walks up to me, shakes my hand, gives me a hug, grabs $300 worth of cannabis and walks off. Laughing, joking, it wasn't this situation where the government made it look like it was a dangerous armed drug trafficking offense where bullets were about to start flying off. You know, there were uh, armed machine guns or men around, like it wasn't nothing like that. It was literally, hey man, what's up? Here you go, how are you doing? Hug, peace. 55 years. Even my judge, who was a conservative George W. Bush appointee, a member of the Federalist Society, looked at this like, what the fuck? This is something ain't right here. He sentenced a murderer the same day I had to get sentenced and his maximum was 17 years. His minimum was like 10. And so this actually shocked the conscience of a federal judge to the extent that he did something that no judge had ever done in history, no federal judge. And as he was imposing sentence, he said, this sentence is not only cruel, unjust, and irrational, it doesn't make any sense. And he called on the president that appointed him to intervene and commute my sentence. I was so shocked. I felt like I got punched in the stomach when he said, this sentence appears to be cruel and unjust. However, and when he said, however, my stomach just nodded up. All right. Still weeding, still a-thawing. I still hear those phones ringing away. Um, And so let's switch gears and hop in our hotbox time machine and set it for 1991 Grateful Dead tour where a young, self-described kind bud snob named Greg first encountered the incredible weed varietal he named Chemdog. Yes, that is right. One of the classic strains of all time. And we talked with the guy who made it what it is, and he told us the origin story of when he first encountered the Chemdog strain that he would name himself after and spend the next 20 years of his life growing it and circulating it to the people. And me and a good friend decided to go on Grateful Dead tour, do the whole summer tour in 1991. Obviously go out to Indiana, um, Deer Creek, I think it was June 6, 1991. First show of summer tour. Went down to Shakedown Street looking for some bud, and that's when I met Joe B and P Bud. We have Kind Bud, Kind Bud. I'm like, okay. I go, what do you guys got? Like, well, we got this stuff called Dog Bud. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm like, why Dog Bud? Like, well, you smoke it, it gets you so high, you roll around like a dog. And he goes, and some people call it cat weed. I'm like, all right, let me look at this stuff. They pull it out. I'm like, wow, it was some of the nicest, smelliest, very skunky, earthy, hit me in the face type fire that was like, wow, never seen pot like this. This is killer. You could tell right away it was killer weed. And I was like, I'll take whatever I can. They only limited it to me like a quarter, I think. And I had to pony up 120 bucks. It was 120 bucks back then. Or 125. They actually asked for the five. They're five 500 bucks an ounce. And I realized, I realized why, you know, I got that bag and there was like, what, 16 shows left on that tour. I think I, I tried to make, make it. So I'd had a bowl for each night of each show. You know, I think I had made it into 16 bowls. I smoked that and I was like, wow, this shit's killer. And speaking of all time hall of fame, high as fuck weed strains, let's keep it in that vein. And we will talk with AJ 
better known, <laughs> some, sometimes known as Asshole Joe and best known as the dude who brought Sour Diesel to prominence. Now, uh, Sour Diesel is maybe the most famous East Coast uh, weed strain of all time. We also did an episode about OG Kush, so we got the West Coast covered. Uh, don't at me, and let's not get the old uh, East Coast, West Coast weed strain uh, wars of the 90s going again. Uh, you know, too many people got too stoned last time. <laughs> okay, I got really smoking all this weed. Uh, so, you know, you're going to get what you get. You're, you got it this far. You might as well stick it out. Um, you know, and AJ is a unique character. He's somebody I've known since I was working at High Times more than 10 years ago. But it was, you know, something he always had to keep very, very, very quiet about. But now, with the laws changing and the statutes of limitation uh, slipping into the past, he was able to come on great moments in weed history and tell his whole weed story, the story of Sour Diesel as well, as we had a good proper sesh. I'm like 19, 20 years old. I'm walking around, you know, with with $10,000 in cash in my pocket at all times, just always looking for weed. It was the number one priority. I went places looking for weed, concerts, parks, wherever I went. I was always trying to buy weed. I wasn't growing. I was just out. I was selling a lot of Mexican weed. <laughs> <laughs> because back then anyone could open up a line of credit for two or three hundred thousand dollars worth of Mexican weed if you knew the right people. Mm. So I would sell Mexican weed so that I could make money to buy good weed. And uh, and then I would use the good weed to network to figure out better ways to find better sources for Mexican weed so that I could sell it and buy good weed, you know. So it all kind of like fit. There's a snake eating the tail. So, yeah, I mean, I literally had to pick New York City up and shake it every day and upside down (laughs) fell out of its pockets. And that's and that's what we did. And, And our intention, you know, took us to all these places where we kept finding more weed. The diesel was very was was clearly number one. But there was also. So chocolate thunderfuck and hash plants and all this other good shit out there. Okay, so AJ is clearly a hustler, and so is Sweet Leaf Joe. Only he did it a little different. Starting in 1996, Sweet Leaf Joe and his Sweet Leaf Collective began bicycle delivering donated cannabis to terminally ill AIDS patients and other people with chronic and terminal illnesses by running tight game sweet leaf joe was able to fly under the radar for decades while simultaneously expanding the operation until they were able to provide millions of dollars in free weed every year to people who were seriously ill and otherwise would not be able to afford cannabis this is really to me what the cannabis movement and cannabis culture and cannabis itself are all about. In this clip, Sweet Leaf Joe described how through helping others, he was actually helping himself. And so 1996, Proposition 215 passed in California. And I was living in San Francisco at the time. And I was a food not bomber. And I was like, why don't we do food not bombs for weed? 
And it was a pretty simple model with that activist group where you're taking surplus from an industry for Food Not Bombs, you know, it's the grocery store industry, taking the surplus and you're redirecting it to those who need it most. And so I thought, you know, there's got to be some surplus in the cannabis industry. Why don't we redirect it to those who need it most? And for me, the people who needed it most were people suffering from, you know, terminal illness. So we were working primarily with HIV and AIDS patients. And, you know, I had just seen cannabis work for myself medically and as an activist, I wanted to to share that. I wanted to help others who didn't have access and specifically people who didn't have access due to financial constraints. Okay, we've talked to and about a fair number of badasses on great moments in weed history, but I don't know, Agnes, you might be the the, the sweetest badassiest of them all. This is a story that goes back to the days when the authorities the police, law enforcement were using helicopters to target cannabis growers in Humboldt County. They were using all other forms of surveillance and they were, in essence, had declared a military war on weed growers. And our guest, uh, who we're going to hear from, Agnes Patak, was uh, a co-founder of both the Citizens Observation Group and K-Mod Radio, both of which were, uh, you know, to some large extent, funded by the growers themselves. And what they were doing, in essence, was monitoring the police. And then they used K-Mod Radio, community-supported radio, to warn people up in the hills who, you know, there was no internet. They had no phone service. And, and even if they did, how would they get everyone aware at once? So, you know, if you were on one of those remote illicit farms, you would have came on tuned in all day. And if they went on the radio and gave you the warning, convoy going up such and such road, helicopter scene heading west above XYZ Valley, you know, you'd have time to bug the fuck out and hopefully live to grow another day. Agnes uh, told us about how camp, the campaign against marijuana planting, this authoritarian push against the growers in Humboldt, really made life a living hell for those mom and pop true believers in cannabis. And she also told us why she's so proud now to see her community continue to honor the plant up there in Humboldt and Northern California and, you know, continue that collective struggle for peace and justice. Her own uh, daughter is now a licensed grower. Shout out to Sunbolt. Uh, and, you know, as you're going to hear in this clip, you know, this was a real, when they talk about the war on drugs, this was a real war on just uh, one of the kindest and uh, most altruistic people we've had the pleasure to have on the show. And where I lived on the Matoa River, my outhouse was out in the open. It was in the kind of a side of a hill. People used to call it the throne. And I was out on the throne, and um, I heard this weird noise. I'm going, what the? And I look up, and there is a double Huey helicopter, one of the ones left over from the Vietnam War. I mean, the guy was so low, I could see his face, the boots. I was, And I just you know, closed my eyes and just flipped him off, held my you know, arm in the air and flipped him off. I mean, it 
was just I couldn't believe what I was experiencing. And that was some of that was that was the first time the helicopters came. So if anybody asks that and uh, literal tens of millions of other things are why we don't want any weed tax money to ever go to law enforcement. Let's use it to undo the damage of the war on weed that they waged for decades. Uh, <laughs> meanwhile, the Weedathon is uh, burning down. Uh, <laughs> so am I, maybe melting down. Uh, but we got to keep it going, and we're only going to keep it going long-term and bring you all these fucking, pretty fucking interesting stories. If you ask me, uh, is if you, yes, you, yes, you make it your 420 gift to yourself, to a loved one, uh, to the universe, to please go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. Help us get to 420 supporters and uh, throw in on that shit and join the fun um, and get a new episode of this show every weed on every weedness day and see me lighten up this here, Jay. As the weedathon goes on, and uh, you can keep a secret, right? <laughs> the segues. Weed is a uh, proven to improve your segues. Uh, anyway, uh, for ten years, <laughs> the secret sesh in Los Angeles has brought together true OGs from all walks of life to see, smell, smoke, and celebrate their favorite plant. Uh, this began the secret seshes in Los Angeles. And now I do know that there are, you know, seshes like this all popping up all over. Uh, it, it started as sort of like a clandestine cannabis farmer's market. It was, it started out in like garages and back lots. It was a really, if you know, you know, kind of thing but then it has since grown into stadium size you know weedy events all unto themselves it is like a world unto itself there is nary an unflattened brim uh no really it brings out people from all walks of life here i'll i'll hat it up <laughs> okay it's just silly that was a bit of a hat on a hat even though it's just one hat uh <laughs> Anyway, the secret sessions are cool as fuck. I love their outlaw spirit. I love that they've been able to come above ground. And I love how they represent a cultural blend of all kinds of people who love cannabis. And at the center of it all, you will find podcaster and comedian Adam Ill, who came on Great Moments in Weed History and took us on a journey from his early days as a stoner skater in the, <laughs> as he called it, the late 1900s, to his role today as Master of Ceremonies at The Secret Sesh. It's a cool story, and Adam Ill, what? Sometimes when I was on the stage and I'm looking out and there's 2,000 people just chilling they're all like you know flat brim pins in their hat pendies shirts <laughs> yeah. like we're all creating a whole cu culture bro and then when we have musicians and celebrities hitting us up to come and hang out and the whole dpg you know uh, uh corrupt and daz 
coming and performing, just being able to meet everyone in real life. I want to let people know social media is not real life and being able to see someone and connect with them and engage and see smiles and just being able to share. We like, oh, try this. This is what I was smoking here. You could have some and Mm. just sharing those those uh, moments and creating experiences for people to talk about. And now I'm featured on a fucking podcast where you guys talk about some great moments in weed history and <laughs> never really knowing that this whole sesh, the secret sesh would be an actual LA fucking legendary story and event. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to puff. I'm going to puff. I'm going to pass it along to the next stoner in line who is the one the only laganja estranja who became an overnight weed icon after appearing on rupaul's drag race and has since become a dedicated advocate and activist spreading knowledge about cannabis in particular its medicinal benefits it was really fun and really enlightening to chat with laganja and we had a lot of laughs along the way and in the interview she hit on sort of all the highs and lows of her story starting with her very first puff of brick weed back in texas now in the beginning when i was in texas you know all i really had access to was like brick weed so weed that comes in a giant brick it's usually brown lots of seeds lots of stems people would refer to it as like mids now maybe maybe even lower grade than mids but um at the time you know i didn't have the tolerance i have now so it definitely worked for me and i didn't really know any differently all right to some of you, <laughs> the idea of brickweed is probably ancient history. Maybe you've come of age or come of gauge, and that's a deep cut uh, weed slang. Gauge goes back to the old jazz days of the 20s and 30s. Anyway, maybe you came of gauge uh, in the era of kind buds and you never smoke some brick weed, but uh, take it from me. There ain't nothing wrong with it. And there's a lot to uh, enjoy and look back fondly on those brick weed days of yore. Some of my earliest and best weed experiences were definitely powered by brick weed. And uh, <laughs> speaking of brick weed, no. <laughs> I have no segues left, ladies and gentlemen. The Weedathon has uh, depleted, <laughs> depleted, the uh, depleted entirely the strategic uh, segue reserve. I'm almost out of weed puns, and yet we are going to puff on because you know we're about to hear from Damian Marley, one of my favorite musicians and a very very interesting person to sit down and talk about weed for an hour with he definitely cites cannabis as a spiritual and creative inspiration to him but really also talked about how it's just a part of day-to-day life for him you know obviously he had a pretty unique upbringing with your father being a reggae legend bob marley but really going back generations in jamaica cannabis was recognized as a spiritual and medicinal plant and also um a way to you know chill out like anybody else likes to chill out with some weed anyway on great moments in weed history 
He talked about the history of cannabis in Jamaica, his hopes and fears for legalization there, and really dug in on why the Rasta community must have a seat at the table as legalization takes root in Jamaica. I'm glad you bring that up because that is one of the things where we have to be concerned about is that those, you see, this has been a part of, of those people's way to sustain themselves. And that's one of the things now with it becoming legal that you don't want to be able to take that ability away from them. And even, even being here at the Emerald Cup over the last few days, we hear a couple of people say that, you know, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of it, it's great that it's legal now, but in, in, a, in a lot of senses, it's making it a, bit, a little bit harder for the little farmers. You know what I mean? To to keep up with what's going on, you know. So that's something that we must pay attention to to make sure that 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 original group of people who have been able to feed them their families and make a life for themselves through growing herb and selling herb and such forth are still able to do so. You know what I mean? We don't want to see this thing come and it's like, oh, you have some big cigarette company come take over the team. All right, we've officially hit the point uh, in the second annual Weedathon, which I'm like, is this a good idea? Is this going to all edit together? Uh, well... <laughs> It sound interesting, or uh, are people going to be going to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and deleting their existing uh, support for this show? I don't know. Uh, all I can say is we're in deep. Tomorrow's Weedness Day, uh, and the only way forward is forward. And I, I don't know. I think it is going to stitch together nice, as they, as they say in the industry. And uh, speaking of stitching together nice... <laughs> We talked to Randy Lanier. Dude, this guy was one of the biggest smugglers of cannabis of the 1980s. And he also competed and won at the highest level of race car driving. He competed at Le Mans. He won the 1984 IMSA Camel GT title. And he drove in the literal Indy 500, all of it completely self-financed by his weed smuggling operation. The dude literally started smuggling weed because he wanted to compete at the highest level. And then, unfortunately, like too many of our guests, he ended up spending quite a lot of time in prison after uh, running from the law for a fair stretch and it is all in his fascinating book called survival of the fastest weed speed and the 1980s drug scandal that shocked the sports world uh randy came on great moments in weed history and he took us through the incredible highs and lows of his life on the track in the field behind bars and now out and working to help fellow cannabis prisoners still locked up. So roll one up, buckle up, and get ready for the green light on a truly thrilling episode. And I tell you what, if there's one thing about Randy Lanier you need to know, it's that he's got a weed, a weed for speed. At 19, when I was 19 years old, I started, I bought a boat and I brought my first load of weed from the Bahamas in, uh, 700 pounds of weed, and did quite good with that. I got a percentage of the weed that I brought in, and I got to sell it. I took that money and bought some other boats and continued my smuggling operation. And by 1984, 
I had had enough money to get away from the club racing and go into the professional racing. And I developed my own racing team to compete against the factories, such as the Porsche factory and the Ford factory and, and raced in the elite series called GTP, Grand Touring Prototypes. They're the most fastest exotic sports cars on the planet. And uh, through the importation and smuggling of the weed that I was bringing in, I was able to compete with the factories. And this is the part of the Weedathon, the second annual Weedathon, where I realize that this is going to take forever to, <laughs> to add it together. And I'm going to literally be up all night. And I just stopped and made myself a cup of tea for a, a little creative fuel to go along with the you know something's got to prop up all this weed uh but you know what i will be happy doing it i should have recorded this yesterday giving myself an extra day but i do love making this show i hope you enjoy uh listening to it uh and you know i think we both Enjoy it a little more if you were able to go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. Maybe even hit pause right now while you're feeling uh, the spirit move you and uh, throw in on this shit. And, uh, you know, when you hit unpause, we'll be talking with Wanda James about November 2012. That is when voters in Colorado and Washington State legalized cannabis for all adults you know, the first two states to do it. She was America's first licensed black dispensary owner with her flagship shop, along with her husband, uh, Simply Pure. And, you know, she was a huge part of that campaign to legalize weed in Colorado. So on the 10th anniversary of legalization, with all its many, many benefits and, uh, you know, a few things that we have got to work to improve, we celebrated that historic victory. And she described for all of us on Great Moments in Weed History, that truly great moment in weed history on election night when they declared weed had won. I remember that we gathered there and there must have been, I'm so bad with crowd sizes, I'm like Donald Trump, it was the biggest crowd ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was this huge crowd of people. There was press from all over the world um, there. I mean, and people were sticking microphones in your mouth and we're from Luxembourg. What do you think about this? You know, um, so there was so much press going on and I remember, I don't know if you've been a part of a, an election night, but they're, you know, showing different races throughout the night and they're putting up Joe Blow one as governor, whatever it is. All of a sudden I heard this scream and I turned around and up on the big screen, it was Amendment 64 passes and the whole place just went berserk. History in the making. Again, this amendment legalizing marijuana, making it legal for adults 21 and older to possess and use up to an ounce of marijuana, also allowing in 2014, January of 14. They just heard. They just heard. Numbers saying that Amendment 64 go history in the making here folks colorado the first state to pass this an amendment to the state constitution making marijuana legal here non-stop party 
Now, the one thing I was told... Everybody just started grabbing everybody and, and crying and, and hugging. And I was there with all of the people that we had been fighting with, the, the patients that were there and um, <laughs> the original hippies that had pulled this together in Colorado, the attorneys that had worked so hard on it, the people that were involved in medical marijuana. It was really, um, man, it was a thing, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> it was fabulous. Cannabis famously fuels the creative process, and I know that firsthand because this is the segue <laughs> that I came up with very deep into the second annual Weedathon, and it is smooth as fuck, y'all. Uh, <laughs> because we are going to talk about cannabis and the creative process with none other than Reggie Watts, comedian, musician, improviser. You might know him from Comedy Bang Bang, one of my all-time favorite podcasts, or, you know, certainly his own comedy specials. Or you could check out Reggie as band leader on The Late Late Show with James Corden. Uh, uh, but I would say, if you're, if you're new to Reggie Watts, check out his very first album. It's called Pot Cookies. And you'll know that he is definitely one of us here on Great Moments in Weed History. In this clip, he explained how he specifically uses cannabis to aid in his creative endeavors. You know, cannabis is an interesting substance, THC, the, I mean, all components of, of cannabis. What I'm interested in, or what cannabis does for me when it's the right, the right vibes, right ratios, because I do edibles, I really have to find the types of edibles that I know will be consistent, the highs will be consistent. Once I find that, um, the state that it puts me in is really nice because I get, as we all do, I get overwhelmed by options coming at me, like a million options constantly. Like, do you want to do this? Are you interested in this? Do you want to be a part of this? Do you, you want to do this? And it's all really good stuff, but it does get overwhelming. And I find that marijuana kind of takes me out of that state a little bit and puts me more in a momentary state, which for being creative is really great for me because it allows me to be more open and take more opportunistic chances. Not to say that I have to be in that state to achieve that. It just reminds me of the state uh, that I am naturally predispositioned to, um, which I think is marijuana's greatest strength. It's to kind of remind you of your childlike innocence and discovery state. And so for me, it's nice. And I experiment with different ratios. I experiment with different strains. I experiment with when I'm doing it, when I'm not doing it. I don't always take it when I perform. I, I'd say... At this point in my life, it's about 50-50. I like to do straight performances. I like to do performances on THC. So it really, it, it's kind of a constant experimental life relationship that I have with the plant. And this is the portion of the Weedathon uh, where I can very easily imagine how at like three in the morning and 16 hours into his telethon, Jerry Lewis made a live uh, televised appeal to America's cocaine dealers asking them to send him 
money because you get a little loopy uh, this far into the weedathon, but it is a delightful atmosphere. And speaking of delightful atmospheres, if you've ever seen Rush live or, you know, lit up a fat J and put on your headphones and listen to some 2112, you know that they are a wildly creative and uh, incredibly successful rock act i have uh over the years through our mutual friends the trailer park boys uh uh i met alex lifeson lead guitar for rush we've had some great times getting lit together and he came on great moments in weed history and he talked about how you know he loves cannabis when he's writing music in his home studio he reveres cannabis uh, for helping him deal with all of the aches and pains that come along with five decades out on the road as a uh, Hall of Fame rock musician. Uh, but the one thing he will not do is get stoned when he's about to go up on stage as part of Rush. He has not done that since the band's early days. In this clip, he explains why. When I say the early days, I mean the days where we were uh, opening up for other bands or special guesting. The demands were different. The, the the demands of the material was different. You didn't, you weren't quite so busy. You could just get up and rock and jump around and have a good time. As things progressed, it became much more complicated. Uh, so you really had to be aware of where you were at all times. I, I remember smoking a little bit before um, a rehearsal that we had one time. And I thought, you know, it was a week of rehearsals and we knew the material. And I thought, oh, this would be kind of fun. Get a little, a, a, a little high and, and uh, play and, you know, be up on the stage without any kind of consequence. And uh, boy, it was a panic situation. I, I was forgetting parts and I got nervous. <laughs> the people that I sat in the production office with and smoked the joint knew. <laughs> But, um, you know, my fellow players, uh, I don't think, knew they knew something was up when I was missing parts. And this is the point in the Weedathon where I switched to joint number two. This is a, kind of a fatty as only weed growers tend to roll them. And speaking of weed growers, uh, we talked on this program with Bill Drake, who in 1970 wrote the first modern guide to growing cannabis uh and published it and it was called the cultivator's handbook of marijuana he is 81 years old and he is definitely most definitely still smoking you know we got lit right on the show as he recalled that heady time when he realized he had a lot of information about how to grow cannabis his friends were always asking him for advice and to look at his notes. And he finally just took the leap and printed the first small batch run of books, which went on to later sell a million copies. But those first books had to be put together by hand by a bunch of hippies and radicals, as he explained on this show. Uh, there was a wonderful uh, uh uh, underground paper in Eugene called the Eugene Auger. So the, I went to the Eugene Auger and 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 uh, said I need to get this book printed and we make it was a collective and they uh, agreed that uh, they would help me and they we had a they had an old Katunka Katunka press and uh, you know so we we printed the book laid it hand, laid it out uh, printed it 
and then collated it by hand. We had a pizza party. Wound up with a friend of mine uh, taking the first 500 books on the back of an old flatbed truck to, down to San Francisco, uh, getting stopped in Shasta County, California, uh, by a deputy who called in everybody. They looked at what was in the truck. Uh, a lieutenant uh, came over and kind of put us through a little bit of shit and then said, well, I can't bust you guys for uh, writing a book. We'd gone through who... What, who'd written it and what it was about. He said, but you wouldn't be stupid enough to be driving through my county with a load of uh, how to grow marijuana books and smoking a joint, would you? <laughs> and we oh, no, sir, not us. Shout out to you, Bill. In addition to bringing so many beautiful cannabis plants into the world by sharing your knowledge with the growers of the 1970s, you are also just an extremely pleasant person to talk to as you shared the cannabis history that you lived through and helped document. And speaking of cannabis history, we've only got a couple more people to pass uh, the J2 on this second annual Weedathon. I remind you one last time, or maybe second to last time, that you can help in this project of preserving cannabis history and creating this community by joining this community at Great Moments in Weed History dot com as little as one dollar a month will help us get to 420 supporters by 420 we're so close those phones just ring-a-ding-ding as uh frank sinatra used to say uh please please uh help me keep doing this show because i really love it and uh and i, I <laughs> because I really love it. There you go. Who wouldn't love to sit down and sesh with the legend Busy Bee, who since 1977 has been rocking crowds and smoking loud as one of the true originators of hip hop music, style, and culture. Busy Bee was there for the earliest rap battles and the arrival of blunt smoking. Uh, hit pause and split a blunt if you need to. He starred in the movie Wild Style and he used to sell loose joints of Acapulco Gold all like a decade or more before Snoop and Dre released the chronic. Hip hop and weed go way, way back and Busy B told us all about that and how he even learned how to grow his own fireweed from a bunch of hillbillies up in northern california so from the south bronx to northern california weed is the healing of the nation i hope that's true because uh this nation definitely needs healing but that is another podcast for another time for now let's get lit Listen to this clip where Busy B explained how performing to adoring crowds at these early hip hop parties in people's apartments or out in the park, he'd then work the crowd selling loose joints to, uh, you know, get paid. Since I'm like one of the founders that go way back, we was already doing loose joints, you know what I mean, in the neighborhood. We was in the Bronx, we was in the ghetto, we in the hood with, with the Jamaicans. So we were smoking, I guess, the Acapulco Gold. The Colombian, now the, the music, bring the people. The people want to smoke a joint or two to, en to enjoy themselves, but, you know, on that high. And we was into that, you know, because we were selling our loose joints and tray bags out there on the streets, taking them to the parties, smoking in the corner, rolling up big spliffs, 
and going out loud in the middle of the crowd, smoking it, letting the people smell the aroma, like, yo, where that shit come from? This crew over here, beers, and I'm over there smoking that shit. We get kicked out a lot of places because we had the shit. <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? We weren't supposed to smoke that shit, but hey, we, we started lighting up, man. It, it was like that. And speaking of getting paid, <laughs> right where we left it off before that Busy B clip, uh, this will be the last appeal that I bank to you. We got we got one more person to pass the J2 on the second annual Weathon. Hey, you know, hey man, hey lady, hey non-binary stoner, everyone else out there. Uh, you know. You're this far into the weed of thought. Help a brother out. Uh, you know, I'm sort of passing the passing the hat. You know, we'll podcast for weed is the sign I'm holding on the side of the dusty highway that is weed history. You know, uh, why don't you stop and pick me up? <laughs> I lost the metaphor. Go to great moments in weedhistory.com. Support this endeavor to preserve weed history and share these stories. It could be your 420 present to yourself, your 420 gift to me. Uh, sign up in the name of a, of a loved one or a, a bong that you broke 10 years ago and you want to honor that memory you can sign up at great moments in weed history.com in the name of uh uh bongzilla or or whoever you might have lost recently and that is a beautiful way beautiful way to preserve those cherished weed memories and speaking of weed I'm going to give the last word on the second annual Weedathon to Alec Dixon, the co-founder of SC Labs, which was one of the first uh, cannabis analytical laboratories. And this comes from an episode called Nerding Out on Weed. Uh, and I got to say, we do just that. And here's the deal. Uh, I, I, I'm going off my prepared remarks and i'm just going to speak from the heart we're very deep into the weedathon at this point we're all friends here and here's the thing like there's a lot of people rapping at you about weed these days and it's terpenes this and strains that and um you know there's a lot of people who know quite a lot about weed and there's also a lot of people who are faking the funk Okay, <laughs> and, 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 and here's what I came up with thinking about this. I've never met a true weed nerd who wasn't also actually just a nerd. I consider myself a nerd, and I certainly don't say nerd in any kind of derogatory way, just the opposite. To me, a nerd is somebody who becomes so interested, so curious about something that they are just fueled with a passion to learn about it. And nerds tend to be humbled by the fact that you can never, ever come close to knowing everything about anything, and certainly not knowing everything about cannabis. So uh, just when you're out and about in the world, people, and, uh, you know, someone is a self-described cannabis expert, 
uh, I will just say the proof is in the pudding. And uh, let's hear from Alec, who to me is the weed nerds, weed nerd, the person who I would go to with any sort of advanced level question about the plant itself, its biochemistry, uh, different strains, different terpenes. I think he has got a great ability to get really, really, really in the weeds yes pulled out one last weed pun at the end of the second annual weedathon alec dixon is about to get in the weeds with you about weed but he makes it all very accessible and uh that is our goal on this show to educate and entertain about cannabis at the same time i will see you next weed on next weedness day for our annual retelling of the history of 420 for now let's nerd out on weed with alec and he'll take us to the credits you know a lot of people talk in terps without kind of really you know kind of awareness of what they are right and so just for those listeners out there that are interested, you know, kind of um, terpenes, you know, they're the aromatic compounds that plants produce that bring fragrance. You know, plants produce these compounds that, um, you know, both to ward away predators, to call in pollinators, to repel from the UV from the sun. But um, it's these these terpenes, the, these secondary metabolites that the plant produces that, you know, together with cannabinoids are what actually create a unique effect that that is possible. You know, the effect range in cannabis that's historically been described as, you know, indica to sativa or somewhere in between. Um, you know, we're, science is now helping to substantiate that, that, that whether or not a strain's tall, thin leaf or short, fat leaf really has nothing to do with what the phytochemistry of a plant produces, right? And so, so really, if we want to get to understand more of the unique range and diversity of what cannabis offers, we need to kind of pay attention, not just to THC or CBD or CBG or whatever cannabinoid, but what the secondary metabolites that are produced are and are what are present. So, so terpenes combined with cannabinoids at the unique ratios that the plant produces, you know, are what make a strain of cannabis more uh, or a certain cultivar more stimulating or cerebral or focusing versus relaxing or comforting or calming in a strain of cannabis right in a cultivar of cannabis i should say you know there could be 20 to 30 plus percent cannabinoid content by dry weight right um as part of the chemical fingerprint and then the rest of that chemical fingerprint is going to be terpenes and other types of compounds right so you could have you know if you took like an anatomy of a bud right you know 20 30 percent right could be cannabinoid content up to three to five percent can be in terpene content, right? The aromatics that really, you know, help to substantiate effects. And then there could be like up to, you know, a percentage in other trace aromatic volatiles, things like flavonoids that distinguish flavor, um, things like alcohol esters, um, thiols, right? The smell of gas, the sour diesel, you know, chem dogs, OG Kush, right? Diesel-y, skunky terp. That's yeah, not a terp, right? It's, it's, it's uh, actually a very trace faint, sulfuric type compound like that that are called thiols right and so the presence or absence of this very trace sulfuric compound will make us will turn on or off the smell of gas in the strain my larger point right and this is kind of gets to like defining quality right so so terpenes and all these other aromatic volatile compounds they're very fleeting 
right? They go away really quickly, right? Based on temperature and storage conditions. Like if a plant's harvested in the middle of the night, right? Or in the middle of the peak heat hours of the day, you know, there might be like 25% less terpene content on the plants that were harvested in the middle of the day because the heat volatilizes off these aromatic compounds. If you've ever grown cannabis and you smell the terpenes in the air in the day, right? Um, towards the end of the day, like that's an off-gassing that happens. The reason why you smell them is because they've gone away from the plant and into your nose. So every day in this way, there's this recharging of these secondary metabolites, right? To protect for the next day's amount of sun that it's going to get. And so, you know, these compounds, they, you know, again, they kind of go away really quickly if they're not being taken care of. A lot of the primary terpenes that are found in cannabis, actually five of the six primary terpenes, um, you know, they're, they're monoterpenes. So they have of the lowest boiling points. And so around room temperature, they can start off gassing and going away. There's so much to kind of gain for the craft community and for the development of the, the, the definition of craft by understanding kind of the role that terpene presence and the aromatics present have, they're the most important thing to kind of preserve. But most consumers of, um, you know, that, that buy cannabis at dispensaries across the nation, they've never seen what farm fresh, sticky, cured herb looks like. You know, most consumers that pay top shelf prices, you know, by the time they're buying it, it's been like months just sitting in a warehouse, you know, all the terps go away. Maybe there's a little flavor left or aroma, but largely it's dry and not kind of pungent or chronic. By the time most cannabis makes it to dispensary shelves, especially in the flood of states that happened with legalization, most herb is at 1% or less terpene content, um, whereas it might be 30% cannabinoid content, right? That's a 30 to 1 cannab to terp ratio. Or, or if the terpenes have all gone away and it smells like, hey, that's like 0.2%. That's like 100 to 1 cannab to terp ratio, right? So in in my opinion, that like that when the ratio has gone so far apart, you know, the craft designation has been lost. It's now like biomass. That's like what distillate tests, like 150 to 1 cannabinoid to terp, right? Because there's no terps, right? And as opposed to kind of a, if you had a strain of cannabis that was harvested in the middle of the night, dried, cured, preserved immaculately, refrigerated all the way to the point where it goes to a dispensary, there could be 3 to 5% terpene content there, Right. So if you had something that was 15% THC, 5% terpene, that's like a three to one cannab to terp ratio. Right. So the presence and influence of flavor and aroma and whatever entourage effects possible, it's guaranteed to be really strong in this example versus the one where all the terpenes went away. But again, I apologize. <laughs> I just rambled on about all that. No, we're, we're, we're calling. We're calling this one nerding out on weed is going to be the name of the episode. Now I picked that before cool. we started. So this is, this is perfect.